Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and nonfiction writer. In this episode, we start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's been on our minds this week in the world of romance. Today, we talk about what happens when you approach Shakira, and she's just not that into you. Then it's time for The Love Story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today we'll be talking about the brief and heated affair between poets Verlaine and Rimbaud, the true originators of Paris bohemianism, in the best and worst ways. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. Let's just say, this week, some of us are thinking longer term than others. This podcast contains explicit language and it discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. Okay, so as far as I'm concerned, there was only one love story this week to talk about. Love story might be pushing it a little bit. Um, did you hear about Tom Cruise and Shakira? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Christopher, I read the news. Okay, did you know there's a war in Ukraine? Yeah, me too. Okay, we're going to circle back to that. <laughs> Okay, well, I guess this is for Rachel then. Yeah, <laughs> I'm caught up, but yeah, I'll help you. So there was some Formula One racing meeting somewhere and... Um, meeting? <laughs> match. There was a match. <laughs> and there on the track, uh, single Tom Cruise uh, bumped into and spent a little bit of time with newly single Shakira. How much do you think that he had to pay her reps for the meeting? Hang on a moment. Because <laughs> <laughs> presumably not very much. I think it was a genuine chance encounter. But anyway, after this little meeting when they uh, they chatted, um, as far as I've understood it, a source close to Tom Cruise has <laughs> said he would be very interested in dating her. <laughs> um, which, I mean, in itself had this real like playground kind of situation in which like, yeah, he, he likes uh, he likes you. Uh, he thinks you're really pretty, and he thinks your husband was so gross with you. I can't believe he ate all your jam. That's not a euphemism. That's actually like him. Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. They played that like paper game. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, but alas, uh, Shakira very quickly came out and spoke against these, um, this this source of Tom Cruise's, and said that uh, the idea of dating Tom Cruise would be hilarious. <laughs> 
I think it's the most diplomatic answer while still being honest. And oh, yeah. also devastating. How would you feel if somebody was like, so I asked so-and-so how they feel about dating you, and yeah. they were like, that would be so funny. <laughs> I think it's the most devastating. When you're with a religion slash, let's be honest, a fucking cult, and someone says it's hilarious, to, the idea of dating you, that's better than it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> Which is the true answer. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I still... I feel maybe it's gendered, but I do feel like there's some power if like some friend was like, I told so-and-so that you have a crush on him. And he was like, that's terrifying versus, yes, I told him he had a crush on you. And he said, that's hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> terrifying. At least he's scared. There's respect there. Yeah. But that's true. Yeah. Shakira's like, oh, you guys are so cute. <laughs> No thing. Can you imagine a world in which I would even consider dating him? Waka waka, never. Waka waka, this time, not for you. Yeah, this time it is for Africa, actually. Just kidding with the last time I said it. It's definitely time for Africa. Tips don't lie and they're saying no. no. <laughs> but also, how embarrassing to effectively make a pass on someone and get rebuffed. And everybody knows. That's it. And you know what? That's the risk you run when you do it through your representatives. <laughs> we were talking earlier about all of the tasks we would love an intern to do. And honestly, this is the reason why we shouldn't have intern. And that's also the risk you run when you're in a religion where they truly believe that there's a robot slash alien who rules the world. I'm sorry. Like, you take risks, okay? They're I mean, yeah, that's definitely one of the risks you run. Yeah. Look, if you're going to follow a religion made up by a sci-fi writer, at least make it a good sci-fi writer. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, make it Kurt Vonnegut or something. Gee, I don't think he started a religion. Anyway, I feel we're getting off topic. Us, um, no. This is not about L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology. Which we might have to cut just for our own protection, by the way. <laughs> good point. <laughs> L. Ron, we love you. Uh, so anyway, from this, I did want to ask the question about like, what is a good way to try and ask somebody out? Uh, have you experienced any terrible ways of somebody asking you out? Have you ever tried to ask somebody out and been rebuffed in these ways? Can I ask a few uh, additional questions? Okay. In this scenario, am I famous? If you want to be famous, then yes. He's asking about your real life now. <laughs> oh, I thought I was supposed to pretend I was Shakira and or Tom Cruise adjacent. <laughs> Your answer was, am I famous? Well, well, first of all, we could do a role play. You are Tom Cruise. You want to ask. Ew, why do you think I'm Tom Cruise? Well, because you, you're asking out Shakira. This is the role play. But don't you think I'm more of a natural Shakira in this situation? Well, yeah, but that, it wouldn't work for the role play. Okay, I just think it's okay. insulting. We'll talk about that off the line. Well, otherwise, your role is just to say that's hilarious. Move on. <laughs> that's all I want to do. Have you not me? <laughs> Okay, let me think about it. Rachel, do you have an answer? I have asked men out twice in my life. Both times went horribly, and I never did it again. That's all you need to know. <laughs> um, the first time was uh, somebody that actually I uh, just uh, <laughs> was a sophomore. All of my older friends were going to prom. I wanted to go to prom, but no junior or senior boy was asking me. Mm -hmm. So I asked a junior boy who 
I felt very asexual about him, which because I was I was like, you don't want to ask somebody that you actually like if you just want to go. It's like, don't try to do two birds with one stone. That's too much. And like beforehand with all of my friends, I was just like, I don't know. Like, is it okay to ask out a boy? And like uh-huh. this, and everybody was like encouraging me. Then he was like, oh, I'm already going with your with your friend who had been listening to me talk about asking him out and apparently just wanted to see me get rejected. Um, so I had feelings about that. I have feelings about that, and I haven't even met them. And um, the second time was really fucking rough. Let's not go there. Okay. So I've never asked anyone out, because, and really just because I'm a coward. There's no other better reason for it. Um, so at least we can applaud Tom Cruise's confidence. Yes. It is the culturally accepted script. <laughs> to get your agent or an unnamed source to say that you think somebody is... Men do the asking out. This is, I mean, again, this was much more true in the 90s when we were growing up. I mean, the 2010s when we were growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, there was still, at least for me, a lot of angst around not wanting to seem too aggressive or too unfeminine or anything like that. I also always had this thing of if they like me enough, they'll ask me, which is not unrelated to my mother sending me a copy of He's Just Not That Into You. That was the book I was thinking of. Yeah. And also, like, you know, until fairly recently in young adult books, at least in the U.S., a big trope or big moment along with prom was the Sadie Hawkins dance, which my school Which does not exist. But the idea was in books for those who might not know, because why the fuck would you? It was a dance where, oh, my God, revolutionary. The girls would ask the boys out. And that was the whole point of this dance. Again, my school didn't have this, but it was such a remarkable thing that it was a thing that happened in YA. She went to Boston Latin, so it's whatever Sadie Hawkins is in Latin. Exactly. I'd love to tell you, but that's for the Patreon. Um, I only speak Latin for money. Take it, take that as you will. Ballet. Anyway, um, so yeah, so never asked anyone out myself. In terms of being asked out, what's m- probably most embarrassing is that I've I don't I've never been officially asked out for anything. It has always been like we're hanging out, and then we're the last two, and then oh, I guess we're the last two. Like this is also France. And we- but same in the U.S. Like, you know, what I mean, like it's it's it, I, and I don't know if that's just it doesn't actually happen. And that's the big myth that we're busting here. But I've never had someone come up to me and go, hello, Nafkote, I know your name and I would really <laughs> love to take you out somewhere. This to me is a totally 70s, 80s thing. Like, I think my parents are worried that I am like absurdly unattractive because like I don't get asked out in like the grocery store and things like that. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm really glad that doesn't happen. <laughs> But they're like, but your life is a Nora Ephron script, correct? <laughs> You're picking out the rutabaga. <laughs> You're picking out the crudite. I mean, they do know me. They're like, You're picking up the frozen pizza. <laughs> the frozen pizza A. I, I I believe they want to put that accent. <laughs> right, right. Um, and yeah, I just think things were changing when we were we we were ripe and ready for the apps in high school, but the apps weren't ready for us. <laughs> And so, you know, I mean, what I do like about the apps is it is more egalitarian, you know, but I I have heard just, you know, anecdotally that even with apps where the woman is supposed to, the woman is supposed to start the conversation, like Bumble, um, that a lot of times they'll just send like a smiley face or an emoticon Mm -hmm. or something like pretty passive, actually, to let the man start the conversation. And I have mixed feelings about that with it being something I would absolutely do myself. 
So I did read a, an account of one woman who on Bumble, when she had a match, she would just send a gif of the queen, the former queen, <laughs> just just waving from Buckingham Palace. And I love this so much. I almost made it my default move until a mutual friend of ours, you guys know who, said that would be the least sexy thing ever. <laughs> I think I know exactly who this beloved friend of all of ours, I believe, you know, but. But I, also I think that somebody who would find that funny would be my kind of person. That's exactly it, right? It's. I was going to say it depends on who you're trying to attract. Exactly. I mean, it's even darker. It's a red-blooded English male. Um. Even darker now that she's dead, but that's also kind of my vibe. <laughs> So it's like, hey, here's a here's a dead fancy lady waving at you. Yeah, that is my vibe. I'll also tell you that people have reactions. It is useful to see that people have reactions that are entirely unrelated to you. Mm -hmm. uh, at one point, somebody matched with me right before, this is four or five years ago, right before I was in the hospital for food poisoning. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, said like, hi, Rachel. And I was just as sick as I have ever been. And then the next day in the hospital, I get a message. <laughs> Again, this is in, in French. And it, it's just like, well, I guess some of us don't have the basic politeness to say hello to a fellow human being. Have a nice life. And then unmatched from me that I see on my way to the bathroom to vomit. <laughs> oh, like, my if you're listening. And we mean you, Tom Cruise. Yeah. I hope you're fucking content. Okay. I hope you're joyeux with your schwa. That's French, everybody. <laughs> yeah, I'm fluent. I took Lingoda. And I said... That's hilarious. <laughs> That's it's so funny though when and where people decide to get indignant on apps that are like we now know from pop culture the whole point is that you're supposed to be whatever lazy fair you don't care. It's just odd to find people who are like oh, I thought this was going to be we're writing letters to each other we're using our best pen penmanship like is there not a middle ground between total rudeness and I understand you're a human being. It's having your it's having your rep leak to the papers that you'd be interested in dating somebody. So the middle ground is fame. <laughs> he was he was trying to find the middle ground, and I I don't feel sorry for him. To be fair, also with Tom Cruise, we might have to cut this for uh, mortality reasons. Is not the open secret that at this point Tom Cruise's people are just it's like an application process, right, to be his girlfriend or partner of any sort. That seemed to be the case. So in that case, so in his case, at least, the idea of a rep kind of being an intermediary, it makes more sense, right? Because it's not really a romantic proposition. It is a financial proposition, right? And it is also a face-saving proposition. Once again, we might have to cut this. I don't want to die for L. Ron Hubbard. Chris, what do you think? <laughs> I'm just wondering if it's possible to create an app which, um, like a, a new kind of dating app, which replicates having a rep kind of like as a process. Maybe that's... There is one that's just for celebrities. Raya. I can't believe you know what it's called. Are you on it? No. <laughs> How do they make money? I guess there just must be a really kind of big sign-up fee. What is everybody with blue ticks? If Tom Cruise asked to date you guys... What would you say? I need to know the parameters and for how long and how much money I would be receiving. Uh -huh. I'm just going to be very honest about that. I have student loans. <laughs> I think I would be... It's tough, isn't it? I want to say I'd be all in, but... Um... I know you do. Here's the thing. I, I knew you would want to say yes, but I really want to caution you. Like, I imagine what you'd have to agree to. That's why I think, honestly, contract, 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 the famous saying, location, location, location of the contract, contract, contract. He's the one making me sign contracts. Tom Cruise doesn't know how to read it. 
cut that. <laughs> David Miskovich is the one who's going to be doing all of the contracts with you. Tom is going to be. You know the name of Tom Cruise's lawyer? Uh, not his lawyer. It's his handler slash perhaps lover. The one whose sister is missing. I'm so sorry. I did actually get kind of deep into this. <laughs> you know, screw the Shakira story. Let's talk about this. Again, I actually don't know how much of this we're supposed to talk about. <laughs> I'm a little bit scared. But yeah, but David is the, <laughs> I'm not that scared, <laughs> but David is super high up in the Scientologist. And like, and for a long time until today, actually, like the rumor is that he and Tom Cruise are lovers and he's, but he's his handler basically. Like, so he's not his official attorney, but he's the one who does interface. He's the one who kind of talks to people because Tom Cruise's biological family has not been cut out of his like business basically. Um, and so it's all the Miskoviches except for Shelly, RIP, where are you, babe? Um <laughs> It's actually really true. We don't know where Shelly is. <laughs> Leah Remini has been doing the glory. I'm still not sure who Shelly is. Shelly, I believe, I think is David Miskovich's wife. Actually, one of the gold, one of the Golden Globe jokes from Jared Carmichael. Uh, I don't know if I say his name, but he had like whatever the Golden Globes in his like three of them, and he was like, "Oh, Tom Cruise didn't come pick up his Top Gun ones, but we're willing to do an exchange for Shelly Miskovich." Wow! And it was like one of those jokes that everyone was like, "Ha ha!" So this is kind of an open secret that we don't know. Signing off from Paris, this is Rachel Kapelkydale, who, of everybody mentioned in this story, still only really understands who Tom Cruise and Shakira are. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's time for the love story. Okay, guys, so this is about a love story between two people. However... For me, I very much decided that one of them is a little bit more interesting than the other. It's definitely Rambo. <laughs> he was the Aries in the relationship. Verlaine was a fucking Libra. <laughs> yeah, so just to put this out there, I'm going to be telling this love story mainly with a uh, with an emphasis on Rambo. And so putting that out there first, I, I wanted to ask, like, what did you guys know about Rambo uh, before coming into this podcast? It was entirely based on Bob Dylan. There is a reference to Rambo in Blood on the Tracks. And then in my all-time favorite movie, 2007's I'm Not There by Todd Haynes, the genius. Todd Haynes, I love you by my movies. Um, <laughs> he has one of the young Dylans as, I think it's, <laughs> I want to say Ben Kingsley. It's not that. It's Ben Whitshaw playing Bob Dylan as Rambo. Yes. And mm. I think speaking in some of the phrases that Rambo used, and it is delightful. And then I tried to read the poetry, and it was impossible. And I said, no, thank you. Um, I have an embarrassing story to tell. I'll make it very brief. Yes. Did you confuse him with Rambo the... Do, do you already know the story? I mean, I'm, this is what I'd be guessing. Like, it's it's Rambo, the, the guy with the gun. Exactly. Um, so briefly, I so I did graduate school in France. I really don't want to brag. I'm bragging. But I gave this presentation that, you know, spoiler, was brilliant. And everyone was, like, really pleased. And then, unfortunately, there was a Q&A, which I had not been prepared for. And at some point, one of the professors asked me, oh, have you considered kind of the influence of Rambo on your topic? <laughs> and 
know me. I'm game. I'm ready to play. I'm ready to banter. I'm not going to just, you know, sit down and go, I don't know, je ne sais pas. That's I don't know in French for those who might not know. And so I went with it. You know, I did a little bit of improv in my time. So I go. And you were like, well, Sylvester Stallone's not a very serious actor, but. Rachel, you have no idea. I went deep into the sequels. I was like, you know, well, you know, I, not me, not the first one, but definitely the the next few with the Vietnam War. I can absolutely see kind of the push and pull between American foreign policy, perhaps, and the way that society was looking. And I'm noticing that everyone's looking at me and not usually in the way that I like to be looked at, but I don't know French people at this point. I'm, I'm going with it. I'm going with it. And the teacher, fuck him, lets me finish, lets me hang myself all the way out there and then goes, uh, I was speaking about the poet. <laughs> and I go, me too. Rambo was named after Rambo. He was? Yeah. Wait, sorry, not... Uh, Rambo the Poet was not named after Sylvester Stallone, right? No, no. Okay, it, Sylvester Stallone Rambo was named after Rambo. Yeah. <gasps> okay, that is shocking, but it was less shocking than the way I thought you meant it at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so that was us, but Chris, what's your experience with Rambo? Well, my <laughs> my own experience of Rambo is... Uh, yeah, it was when I first came to Paris and uh, was friends with a lot of uh, these kids staying in Shakespeare and Company, and they all thought that they were Rambo, basically. Like, so, um, and you know, and they would, they, they were kind of engaged. There were about three of them engaged in this game of like competitive sociopathy with one another, in which they would do things like throw people's laptops out <laughs> of windows of third floor apartments. Um, They'd steal stuff from each other and from, you know, shops. And they, you know, I, I remember one of them kind of like on a night out, he got hit by a car and he picked himself up and he went, cars aren't going to run over me. I'm going to run over cars. <laughs> and then he, he proceeded to run over a taxi and then the, the taxi driver got out and punched him in the face. They're the kind of people who I like hearing stories about, but I hope I never meet them. <laughs> They're the kind of people that I'm like, there's a reason I didn't know Chris in our early 20s. And it's because the universe was like, you would have been in love with these three men and it would have been a disaster. I would have been in the car they ran over. <laughs> oh, really? I would have been like, delightful. No. Oh, no, no. <laughs> like when I went to a, a writer's group and I mean, like they were so obsessed with their own genius as well. And one of them bought this. I wouldn't know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> one of them bought this thing to this writer's group and it was this epic poem that he had written and he, he in order to read it at the writer's group he stood off on a chair and he recited this whole this whole poem in front of everybody uh, which included the line <laughs> frustrating like a cake in a cage which I still remember Chris, but, Chris, is he single? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's now he he now lives in a squat I think outside of Oxford. That sounds about right. You know he's now running guns in Ethiopia. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really re realize it at the time, but like the the name Rambo got kind of thrown around a little bit. But not, one of the kind of the interesting things about trying to be this kind of person is that you can never really admit your influences. So while subtly Rambo was a kind of uh, a patron saint almost to them, they never confessed to it. Because they're also trying to invent Rambo and be Rambo. Yeah. And you can't do that if you admit he already existed. This is a way as well of saying that w without having revealed too much about who Rambo was, he was definitely part of 
not exactly a movement, but let's call it like an idiom of bohemianism. And I think he's somebody who I almost came to from the wrong direction in the sense that I knew about all of the people who had been inspired by Rambo, and I think we all do, but I hadn't really any idea about kind of like what had created Rambo in the first place. So before I get into even talking about who he is, I want to talk a little bit about bohemianism. Rambo in many ways was the sort of the ultimate bohemian. Uh, He won it, basically. Yeah, he was every guy I went to college with a hundred and something years earlier. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I, I say, yeah, like, I, I know every guy who you went to college with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, around 2007, not a single man had a bottle of shampoo on the campus. <laughs> so, bohemian was originally a word used by French people to describe Romany gypsies who used to live in Paris because they thought they came from Bohemia, which is a province of the Czech, Re- Czech Republic, which they didn't. But yeah, running theme of this podcast French people are dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but effectively, Bohemian very quickly came to mean just people who are outside of ordinary society, um, which was a category that a lot of artists and writers considered that they belonged to uh, in this is around the 1840s uh, and it was really codified by a guy called Henri Merger who wrote a book called Scenes from a Bohemian Life which really glamorized the poetry and romance and the struggle of being an artist mm-hmm. in Paris and it was famously turned into an opera by Puccini called La Bohème <laughs> yeah um, and then, you know, after this book had come out, there came uh, Charles uh, Baudelaire, who's a poet and an essayist who wrote Le Fleur de Mal, which valorized sex and drug taking and just general licentiousness. <laughs> so this is all to say that by the mid 1800s, uh, when, when, you know, when Rambo is, is born, like the, the idea of the thing that he is going to be best at has already really been established. And the idea of the thing which like everybody is going to associate Rambo with, um, you know, exists already. He's, he's almost as bad as all of the people these days who you meet who are impersonating him in some ways because he was impersonating other people. I don't really know how I feel about him now. Um, he was born in a provincial town uh, called Charleville uh, in the Ardennes department in northeastern France. And he was the... That's where all the sexy stuff comes from. <laughs> northeastern <true>. France. <laughs> Amiens? <laughs> Famously. <laughs> Are you referring to Brigitte and Emmanuel Macron there? Uh-huh. <laughs> Amiens. Sex town. <laughs> Sex province. <laughs> Chris, we've talked about this. Northeastern France, the unsung hero of sexy France. You know how Belgium's the sexiest place on earth. You're just getting closer and closer. A lot of this story takes place in Belgium. I know. There's a Belgian jail, I believe. So uh, Rambo was the second child of Frédéric and Marie Rambo. Uh, So a little bit about his parents. Frédéric was an army captain and generally likable, good time guy. And Marie was from a good Ardennes family who had fallen on hard times. And uh, Frederick met her when he was 
stationed in Charleville briefly and he was just taking a Sunday stroll and he met this woman who was 11 years younger than himself and they fell in love. It does kind of feel like the premise of a musical. Mm. It's also the second time in three episodes that Chris has used the term good time guy, which I've never heard. And I'm a little bit concerned that Chris thinks that this is like kind of like contemporary slang, but let's let it go. So yes, they, they, they fell in love despite the fact that According to one biographer, Mary was the exact opposite of Captain Rambo. Oh. Um, she was apparently... She was a bad-time girl. <laughs> bad-time girl. Bad-time girl. She was narrow-minded, stingy, and completely lacking in a sense of humor. Okay, I'm sorry. I bet she was actually like pretty sensible and nice. That sounds like a dude describing a woman at this time period. She was a bitch. She wouldn't let him do anything fun. Well, I'll tell you what. Artur um, used to, himself used to refer to his mother as the mouth of darkness. Oh, my God. Um, even so, they didn't get to spend the, the couple, Rambo's parents, didn't get to spend a huge amount of time with one another. Of the seven years that they were married, uh, Frederick was only in Chalville for three months. Oh, shit. Okay. I mean, if you're going to marry somebody unpleasant, that's the way to do it. I'm going to marry the mouth of darkness. <laughs> Quite quickly, he started referring to her uh, himself as a widower, and she would refer to herself as the widow Rambo. So it's safe to say they didn't get on. You know that really healthy relationship when you when you pretend that somebody has died <laughs> rather than deal with them. Wow, that's chilling. But I kind of love it. Sorry, keep going. Yeah, I, like, but so uh, Mary Rambo, she was incredibly pushy uh, in terms of her children and wanted to make sure that they had the best education possible. That she used to really push Rambo to work as hard as he possibly could. She would make him and his brother learn hundreds of lines of Latin verse by heart. And if they made any mistakes, then she would punish them by taking away their meals and not feeding them. So this is... It's a very raw doll mother. Yeah. Up until the memorization, I was with her. But then after that, I was not. I was out of the door. Yeah. I mean, and Arthur Rambo, henceforth Rambo, uh, he, he, he absolutely hated doing this. He hated learning Latin. He was like, Latin is just this sort of bourgeois conceit in order to get jobs later in life. But that didn't mean that he wasn't... You know they quiz you on Latin when you go for jobs. <laughs> it was the 19th century. I hate that. <laughs> Naf would love it. Naf, surprisingly incredible, not surprisingly, but incredible at Latin given how useless a skill this is in modern life. Puelai, feminine girl. I could go on. <laughs> um, so even though... Uh, Rambo hated learning Latin. He was incredibly good at it, and he won prizes at school. He uh, he won prizes for writing poetry in Latin and in French. And we're already kind of like, there's a weird thing going on here in that we're we're, we're talking about like Rambo at the age of fifteen, but already at the age of fifteen, his literary career is beginning. So these prizes that he's winning in poetry at school are for poems which have later been kind of anthologized into the French canon. Well, also, he only lives till 37, so he's basically middle-aged. But imagine if, like, something you put on, like, fucking live journal was then canonized, right? Like, I didn't have a live journal. I wasn't allowed to see other people before 18, but I just imagine, like, something on Tumblr being like, oh, and now this is going to be in an anthology. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, well, so I've got a couple of stanzas here from one of his poems from that time. So this is, well, I, it's only a couple of stanzas, so I don't think you get them. 
No, no, this is uh, this is early on. I mean, maybe that's why I always ask up people. <laughs> How's he doing? Is he simple as yet? <laughs> also, I know like three things about poetry, and I was really How's excited. his mother? How's his mother? I'm One of your questions on a Tinder date. He's simple as yet. Chris, read us some poetry. <laughs> hey, this is um from a poem called. It's obviously translated into English. A poem called Ophelia, written when he was fifteen. Um, for more than a thousand years, sad Ophelia has passed a white phantom down the long black river. For more than a thousand years, her sweet madness has murmured its ballad to the evening breeze. The wind kisses her breasts and unfolds a wreath, her great veils rising and falling with the waters. The shivering willows weep on her shoulder. The rushes lean over her wide, dreaming brow. That's pretty good, right? I mean, it's it's, it's horny, but it's good horny. <laughs> yeah. I don't care for it, but that's... <laughs> I mean, it feels very much of its time and slightly even a precursor to pre-Raphaelite. You know, I think I think that's pretty good for a 15-year-old. Do you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the parts of Anne of Green Gables where she puts in her own writing and it is like Victorian and whatever. And like the, the text just tells you that you're supposed to find her a genius because it's the 19th century. And this this feels very much in line with that. So whether or not he was uh, a genius... The, clearly the uh, the jury is out on that. No, no, I think we all think he's a genius. We all think he's a genius. Look, I compared him to Anne of Green Gables. That's as genius as Exactly. Um, his mum was still super overprotective and super strict. She never used to let young Rambo out of her sight. This enfant terrible of the poetry scene used to be walked to school until he was 16 years old through the streets of his little provincial town. And then when he left school... The, the mom, his mom would come and collect him and walk him back home. And he was never And he's just like, him. if I could just see some actual breasts instead of dreaming about thousand-year-old Ophelia breasts, <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? It's like me and Boston, me and Rambo. <laughs> You're so similar. Oh, just looking for the breasts. Just looking, <laughs> looking away. Look, at, look, mom, can I just see a tit? Just one. <laughs> if I said that to my mom, you know I'd be a nun by now. You know she would have shoved me into a goddamn nunnery. So it's fair to say that Rambo was not happy about this uh, treatment mm. by his mum. And, you know, in his own like reading in his personal life, he was just always dreaming of like escaping Charleville. And he was reading about like, you know, traveling in exotic places and going through jungles and deserts and having adventures and stuff like that. It didn't take him very long to act on this at the age of 16. In search of the adventure, he ran away by train to Paris without a ticket. Ooh, spicy. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it ended up well for him, though. No, he got picked up at Gare du Nord. Uh, <laughs> so he didn't make it very far and then got sent to prison to uh, go for, to trial for um, oh, <laughs> running away and like fair evasion. So not good for Rambo. Okay. Eventually, but he, was, he was bailed out and he was sent back to Charleville, his... Mum slapped him in the face famously. Yeah, poor Rambo. But when he was back in Charleville at that point, after having had his whole ex- escapade in Paris, he decided to go full poet. Um, yeah. <laughs> Mom, I've been in jail. <laughs> so he was drinking loads. He was being really insulting to people. He was writing these scatological poems. He stole... Sounds insufferable. <laughs> he had lovely eyes, though. Remember that he's, uh, he's he's quite a beautiful boy, and he had lovely eyes. Oh, that will carry me through. I think it's carried me through a lot of relationships. <laughs> and 
I won't spoil what he ends up becoming, but it will ruin it for you. <laughs> and this was when he st- he came up with a new tack. He decided that just leaping on a train to Paris was probably not the way to get away. And he started to he, he started to write letters to various famous writers <laughs> in Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, including his poetry within them and effectively just like begging for some kind of sponsorship and saying, look, I'm a genius in the provinces. Can I come please live with you? Yeah. <laughs> the Paris poets were like, we're fucking poor, man. <laughs> but also I quiver now to ask anyone to just read my writing. The idea of writing someone to be like, and can I live with you for a while is astonishing. Sorry, I feel like the provinces to Paris back then were what like a foreign country is to France now. Yeah. If some American, like some little 16-year-old American, sorry 16-year-old Americans who are listening to this, we love you, but if you wrote to us and we were like will you give me money and can I come live with you? <laughs> what if they added at the end of it, P.S. I'm genius. <laughs> oh, 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 it is a game changer. <laughs> Game game changer. <laughs> well, no, to be fair, none of these uh, you know famous writers responded. I mean, he wrote to like you know Victor Hugo and people like that. And they <laughs> they did not get back to to young little Rambo, apart from one guy. Yes, Paul Verlaine. He responded. Now, a little bit about Paul Verlaine here. Uh, he was originally from Metz. How do you say Metz? Met. Correct. Oh, no. You say me- I, I've heard it pronounced me. No, it's I think it's mess because I remember I once made the joke. Remember the time we met, and then someone told me that's not funny because it's not how you say it. So I think it's mess. Mess is also in the in France's northeast, and Valen he's a, a rising star on the Paris poetry scene. Uh, he's in his late twenties. He's married. Um, and yeah, and that ends super well. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm I'm literally the person who told my sophomore class. I I just I read The Great Gatsby in one sitting, and we were supposed to read like 20 pages at a time, and assumed that everybody else would have as well. And then the second day we talked about it in class, I was like, but then after his death, and everybody was like, what? And I was like, what? I thought you were gonna say he's unreliable as a narrator, though. <laughs> Spoilers throughout, guys. <laughs> But when uh, so when Verlaine gets Rambo's letter with uh, a few of Rambo's poems in it, um, he's like, "Send pics." <laughs> Let's clap for that. That's great. I love it. And honestly, you're you're a fucking sixteen year old. Those are still the pictures that are used. Oh yeah. yeah like, can you imagine dying now and the pictures that circulate of you? Are you at sixteen? I want to be clear though here. Uh, Verlaine did not say send pics. <laughs> you're right. He said envoie des photos. <laughs> Instead, he said uh... get thee to a photo salon. <laughs> Come, dear great soul, we await you. We desire you, and. He sent Rambo a one-way ticket to Paris. Okay, that is hot. The royal we and a free ticket? I'm on my way. <laughs> I'm already there. Though he was a poet. like You're right, and he knows it. So Rambo, he turns up at... He, Rambo turns up chez Verlin, uh late September 1871. And Where in Paris does Verlaine live? I don't know. Uh, it, was at, it was at 37 Rue des Martes in the 9th. Oh, <gasps> uh, no, excuse me. That's, that's something called the Corse Verlaine, the school. His actual garret was uh, 39 Rue Descartes in the 5th. So Rambo turns up at 
Verlaine's place in the fifth. In the fifth. <laughs> okay, Latin Quarter. <laughs> Rambo fits right in. <laughs> He's like, I can only speak Latin. This is amazing. <laughs> Talks to the natives like no big deal. <laughs> this is late September 1871, and Rambo has turned up to stay. Well, 1871 is a huge war. In their loins. <laughs> but also in real life. Oh, shit. Yeah, you write too. <laughs> the Fran- That's the beginning of the Third Republic. That's the Franco- Franco-Prussian War. Yeah, France gets surrounded by all sides. That's when they eat the animals in the zoo. I have a feeling the war is probably over by now. This I think so. actually be during the <sighs> Okay, hold on, Franco. <laughs> but it could have been. Maybe he got through. No, I think the Franco-Prussian War has happened. So it ended in January 1871. Okay, so Prussia. So this is the beginning of the Third Republic. It's a very exciting time. Um, And of course, as it is when all of us learn about the Third Republic, it's a sexual awakening. Yeah. (laughs) Apart from me. I I guess I haven't learned about it yet. Um, So (laughs) careful or I will tell you. (laughs) That's a threat. (laughs) So Rambo has turned up at Verlaine's place in the 5th. Uh, Verlaine's wife, Mathilde, is the same age as Rambo. Sort of 17. They're both 17. They're 17? Oh, yeah, by the way. Sorry. Yeah, Rambo's 17. Mathilde's 17. I thought they were more like, they're, they're like 1920. Shit! Uh, they're young. That's that's kind of like... 20's ancient, you're correct. That's kind of Rambo's whole shtick, like... That's true, yeah. Uh, it seems kind of more like Verlaine's whole shtick. <laughs> 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 So Matilda's pregnant, by the way, at the moment. With a wow. With a with a, with a baby. Is he with a seventeen-year-old? I've lost all count. And Verlaine has recently left his job in the civil service, and started drinking. Hot. You know when you're a seventeen-year-old <laughs> wife who's pregnant, and your husband's like, you know, the one steady source of income we have. I think I'd rather be drinking. Yeah. And you're like, what a good choice. I have a lot of say in this. <laughs> and I have other options. <laughs> Another spoiler here, Verlaine is not a good drunk. Oh, man. Not a good drunk slash husband slash lover. Slash human being, I think. So this is a state in which he writes to Rambo. It's like, yeah, sure, totally, come over. He's a great bar, though. Yeah, yeah, he's like, you know, he's he's knocked up his wife. Uh, he started drinking and he's like, yeah, you're a genius, come Stay with me. Oh, oh. Can you imagine being a 17-year-old pregnant girl and no. being like, okay, no. <laughs> now there's another 17-year-old coming into the house who doesn't have to be pregnant. And also, what's going to happen? I wonder. <laughs> well, it's funny. So Verlaine actually describes Rambo on their first meeting as having the real head of a child, chubby and fresh, on a big, bony, rather clumsy body of a still-growing adolescent. But clearly this did it for... Uh, oh, I'm... Uh, wow. Ew. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. Uh, because they... Him and Rambo, this uh, genius 17-year-old, he's turned up on his door, start a um, a pretty sexy affair, which is fueled by the drugs of absinthe, opium, and hashish. How old is Verlin again at this point? Uh, I think he's in his late 20s. I think he's 29, 28. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, also, just like to point out that all of those drugs probably available over the counter at this point. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> We're just like, okay, I need uh, however many grams of hashish. Yeah. <laughs> I need an eight ball and um, some aspirin because I'm waking up with these headaches for some reason. <laughs> so yeah, they start this uh, th- th- this torrid affair, and I read a great thing about the you know the nature of the affair, how they used to make love like tigers. Oh. Now, I mean, what does that mean to you? It means that whoever wrote that had never seen tigers copulating. I guess it. I guess it's shorthand for ferocious and fierce and lots of, like, scratches in the morning. I also think it's kind of just, like, hard and fast. That's what yeah. it is. Okay, so, yeah, you, you would think so. And, I mean, you're talking in kind of, like, metaphorical language. But right. surprisingly for poets, when they said they used to make love like tigers. They, they, they bit? They used to strap knives to their hands and then go at one another while they were having sex. Excuse? Yeah, they were bohemians, Naf. They made love like tigers. We'll always have Paris. We'll be right back with more of the love story. We'll always have Paris is brought to you by Lingoda. So you guys, have you ever been to the famous flea market up north of Paris called the Marché aux Puces? Yes. Have you tried to bargain there? Oh, yes. How did it, how did bargaining go for you, Neff? It went terribly. I, I wouldn't be surprised if I actually ended up paying more. <laughs> right? right. Because the thing is that these the sellers there do know when you're foreign. Mm-hmm. And they do know that they can get a little bit more out of you because they're hoping that you're trying to buy the perfect souvenir. Oh, hence why I always only window shop. But you are also sans souvenir. So... The lesson of this story is that the better your French is, the better deals you're going to get on French antiques. All my souvenirs are only memory. (laughs) You'll only get that joke if you speak French. (laughs) Follow us (laughs) to get to that level of French where you can actually bargain with the antique stealers. We recommend Lingoda. And here's why. Lingoda has a program of sprints. These are two-month learning challenges at their online language school where you take lessons intensively and you make big progress and you can actually get a bargain before you've ever even set foot in the flea market here in Paris. So here's how it works. Over the course of two months, 60 days, you attend one lesson every day for the super sprint or one lesson every other day for the sprint. You decide what lesson topic you take. You decide when the class is. These are live online courses, five people maximum with native level teachers. Literally one in the morning, doesn't matter what your time zone is, you can find a course on the topic that you want. If you attend all of your classes and follow a few other simple rules, you get 100% of your cash back for a super sprint and 50% of that cash back for the sprint. These are 60-minute classes, 60 minutes out of your day to learn French potentially for free is money in your pocket. That's a bargain. So you can have speaking and real live conversations in small groups, learning grammar structures, but also just practicing your fluency. Then you can brush up with exercises and quizzes on the website. So go to lingoda.com, use our code ALWAYSPARIS20 for 20 euros or 25 US dollars off of your deposit, which is already enough for like a beautiful 
you know, antique postcard collection for a scarf or shawl. I'm buying a chaise lounge. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many things that you could do with this money that you're saving right off the bat, let alone with the money you're saving from the courses as a whole. Again, that's lingoda.com. Use our code alwaysparis20 for 20 euros, $25 off. All of the other poets who were, because Verlaine was, uh, you know, a fairly established poet at that time, and he was friends with other poets, and they were really excited to meet Rambo to to begin with. They were like, oh, this this guy is like this sort of like untrammeled genius from the provinces, but the way they treated him was almost like this pet that they they sort of had. Well, yeah, he's seventeen. Haven't you haven't you ever been a freshman among seniors? <laughs> you are their pet, and that's a good position for you to be in. For everyone else, he's the the kid brother. Yeah, yeah, and they're like, oh, we've got this, we've got this genius among us. What what can we make him do? And there's a story which I loved about like that they gave him a, a, a sheet of paper and a pen, and they would just like put him in a room and say like, write a poem, Rambo, write a poem. You know how you do with your friends' lovers. <laughs> do, do you know what Rambo did? He shat on it. He trashed the room. He just completely smashed the room up. Oh, that's fucking bohemian. That's fucking punk. (laughs) Walked out of there, hadn't written a word. What did bohemians do before there was bohemianism? I mean, that's a... Waged war against Prussians, obviously. A tree falls in the forest with no one to hear it. Is it a bohemian? (laughs) Um, So it didn't take the, uh, the other poets, actually very long to to go off Rambo because he was also busy doing all of these like other hilarious pranks um the famous one is putting his own poo underneath their pillows gross oh i knew there was something with shit gross 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 maybe not predisposed to like love the 17 year old lover of your 29 year old but you're not going to be more enamored when he puts his fucking shit in your pillow. Right. It's just like, I think he's vastly misjudged the situation in terms of how much people genuinely like him and so how worried. much patience they're having. I was so worried you were going to say he is vastly misjudged. I was going to say, stop the mics. He also, and admit this is hilarious, he um, made a cocktail with sulfuric acid and gave it to another poet. <laughs> What would that do? I don't know if that's... I'm not a chemist. I think that could kill someone. <laughs> I want everyone to know that Chris looked at us with a twinkle in his eye. This is kind of hilarious. <laughs> hey, Rambo is a legend. People love him these days. People people are trying to be emulating Rambo. Look, the thing that people don't understand about Chris is that he has a mischievous side. Um, less so in what he does as in what he appreciates. Uh, Rambo, the patron saint of British people at Shakespeare and Company circa mid-2000s. <laughs> so yeah, as I say, this is enough to put some poets off Rambo. Can't imagine how. I would have fucking killed him. Yeah, but not Verlaine. Verlaine is uh, still, I mean, they're getting up to these hijinks together, effectively. Like they are in it, they're in it together. In September 1872, so it's a year after having met, they leave Paris. It's only a year of their lives that they've done all this. They uh, they head to London. Uh, Verlaine abandons his wife and new son. Um, while they're living in London, they live in poverty in Soho, and they scrape this sort of like scrape out a living from a bit of teaching and also getting money from Verlaine's mother. 
which is uh, also a pretty solid Bahamian move. Yeah. Sorry, for a second, I was super happy that they had to work. <laughs> and then we just go back to what all of the artists on our podcast do, yeah, exactly. just ask money from their parents. And really important, yes, yeah, solid Bohemian move completely. <laughs> now, it's around this time that Rambo starts working on what's arguably his most famous poem and the only one that he published himself in his lifetime. Which, pause, can anybody name it? <laughs> I, I can't name it. Basically, I'm asking if Naf can name it because I'm sure Chris has it in front of him. No. <laughs> His most famous poem that not three writers who are widely read could have named. I knew this poem. He, well, it's easy to say, isn't it? The poem is called A Season in Hell. And I feel that the fact that he's writing this uh, poem while he's there living with Verlaine, it doesn't speak volumes for the quality of their relationship. Now, A Season in Hell is not something that it's easy to offer a synopsis of. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the title does it a bit. (laughs) To to a degree. Uh, It's very intense and it is quite incoherent in parts. Uh, I feel like I already got that from the title. (laughs) As far as themes go, what I read was that it could be described as an extended meditation between the poet and his own other. Um, who in parts is Verlaine. So this is presumably Rambo writing about Verlaine to a degree. His kisses and friendly arms around me were just like heaven, a dark heaven that I could go into and where I wanted only to be left poor, deaf, dumb and blind. Already I was getting to depend on it and I used to imagine we were two happy children free to wander in a paradise of sadness. Oof, this is controversial. This kind of... Some of the sentiments make me think a little bit of how, um, like, it, it makes me think a little bit of the lovers in Giovanni's room. That feeling of, it's toxic, but I can't, I can't leave. Why can't I quit you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I've never been jealous of him. He'll never leave me, I'm sure of it. What will he do? He doesn't know a soul. He'll never work. He wants to live like a sleepwalker. Walker. It's what David's thinking about Giovanni. Yeah. <laughs> there does, there definitely is, like, a theme here of... Absolutely. Like the toxicity of love, the inability to leave it. It's horrible. It taints me. He also refers to Verlaine in the poem as his pitiful brother, the mad virgin. And he refers to himself as the hellish husband. And he describes their life together as a domestic farce. Jesus. Which I think is putting it mildly. Um, and there's a great thing from actually one in talking about how difficult to understand his poems are and how incoherent they might be. One of Rambo's biographers, Graham Robb, um, he suggests that the randomness is partly down to Rambo having been so drunk when he was writing the poems. Graham Robb is great. And, no, but no, even better, Graham Robb's suggestion for when you read the poems is to get drunk yourself and then read them and then you'll understand. I'm not mad at that. But I want to ask also, do you, do you think or do you know that um, I'm really struck by that phrase, a domestic farce? Is there... And I don't know, like a a level of perhaps Rambo thinking, I'm unhappy, I'm not well. Could this be because we're not with women? You know, is there a, like a measure of like self-loathing that's also part of this, I guess, or like a feeling of well, and you also see, he also uses the term like I'm the husband, exactly. you know, and like and, and again, I've said this before in the pod. I think there just isn't language at the time to exactly describe dynamics in same-sex relationships, what even if you are in one. I think that this is particularly true or with Verlaine and <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think particularly true with Verlaine and Rambo because. Even with sort of like Giovanni's room, and you have to consider Giovanni's room was written like however many years after. Almost a century. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. 
Yeah. yeah I, and what they're doing, it's interesting because, I mean, both of them went on to have uh, other male lovers. But I, I think it's and I, I mean, I'm hesitant to, you know, be too specific about this because I don't necessarily know. But I think that their homosexuality is maybe not expressed purely in terms of like homosexuality but also just in terms of the idea of being outside of society and saying why yeah. can't we have this as a yeah. relationship and so i don't know if they're exploring that as a category in the same way as opposed to just generally exploring the category of like bohemianism and why can't we just be attracted it's it's almost like the word queer you know when people will Say, I, you know, I'm not particularly this or that. I'm queer. You know, I, I, I have various relationships in various formations. And I think there's also something to be said about feeling or um, knowing I am not the way that I am, big air quotes, supposed to be in society. And, you know, society at large tries to place labels upon that. But I think there's something to be said. I think your point about kind of bohemianism and whatever their relationship was, whatever their romantic relationship was, however they defined it, those two things are not disconnected, right? There's something about being on the margins of society in multiple ways that I think can be put into words in a way that is perhaps more poetic and it might not be comprehensible necessarily to someone who's, you know, centuries later trying to, you know, translate it and parse it, right? Um, it's And so I, a little bit, even though I, I stand behind my question, I also understand that it's a bit of a naive question, right? And a bit of a limited question. Well, and I think there's something here, too, about what makes you just marginalized enough. Because these are still mm -hmm. uh, bourgeois, basically bourgeois white men who are having a relationship that is... I don't think we've understood to this point how well it's understood, but it seems like the Bohemians understand that they're romantically involved. Well, it's an interesting thing about them being kind of bourgeois white men, which is entirely true. But I think it's like at that point in time, almost the only people who could be outside of society and still have a voice. So there is some beautiful stuff, though, in there, in the um, A Season in Hell. The most famous quote from it is uh, probably, Eternity is the sun mixed with the sea. Um, mm. That's the line that you're going to come across on. I don't get it, but I love it. <laughs> that really is how I feel about a lot of, of, of poetry, frankly. And that's my own ignorance. Yeah, that's um, negative capability, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, so many thoughts. Hey, Chris, didn't you market t-shirts with sayings on them? And uh, clearly that's not one of them. <laughs> I sold t-shirts. Um, I think they were more like the man, the legend t-shirts. I'm with stupid. <laughs> there was no eternity as the sun mixed with the sea. Oh man, it's going to be so hard to Photoshop I'm with stupid t-shirts onto the painting of Berlin Rambo. Imagine a t-shirt, I taught your girlfriend eternity. I'm just saying... <laughs> You know, that's really more of a bumper sticker. That's true. That's true. Anyway, the relationship between Verlaine and Rambo became increasingly bitter. They, uh, you know, two... After how many... About how many years? I mean, I guess they've been together for about a year at this stage. But it's like when they're in London, that's when it starts, like, really... I mean, look, you're broke in a foreign country. How long does it take? And you're, you're 18. Yeah, and being, uh, I read a lot of things about how being a bohemian in London was not like being a bohemian in Paris. Like it was, you would basically just poor. <laughs> yeah, you go from being, you go from being Marius in Les Miserables to being a Charles Dickens character. 
yes. and it's not a comfortable transition. It fucking blew my mind. Anyway, um, you know, the, the, the relationship becomes kind of, it, it frays until eventually Verlaine abandons Rambo in London and he goes back to Brussels to meet. Oh, fuck you, Verlaine. I mean, I, I'm not surprised, but fuck you. It's fine. No, I feel better about that. It's fine because he starts to miss Rambo pretty soon uh, and he telegrams Yeah, because there's a baby around. How soon do you miss your young lover when you're just like, oh my God, there's a fucking diaper. There was a fucking diaper 30 minutes ago. Yeah, and we respect all parents, but honestly. <laughs> I mean, it's a pain. You know it's a pain. He gets Rambo to come and meet him in Brussels. Rambo does. The least sexy city on the planet. That is true. I, I dug by that statement. This is before the EU, so less least sexy. <laughs> reunion. Still least sexy. least sexy. The reunion does not go well. Uh, they when they get back together they argue constantly and Valen meanwhile he's mainlining the absinthe he's just sort of like you know knocking it back knocking it back sorry the phrase mainlining absinthe <laughs> makes me want to die let's clarify that absinthe is a absinthe is a drink <laughs> um, so it's not like he's uh, got an IV of it I mean, he might, he might as well do. Anyway, on the morning of the 10th of July, 1872, Verlaine buys a revolver and some ammunition. <laughs> you know, when you're just like, I'm not sure I want to shoot my lover, but I'd like to be prepared <laughs> just in case. <laughs> Buying a condom, but... Um... <laughs> you're just like, fingers crossed. <laughs> Hope it doesn't make an imprint in my wallet. <laughs> and then that very afternoon, they're having an argument in their hotel room and in a t- it's like I knew I bought this for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just happened to have this gun. Verlaine shoots two shots at Rambo. But he just grazes him, right? Yeah, he just he, he hits his wrist. It's a sexy graze. Yeah, it's a sexy graze. One of the shots hits him in the wrist. I um, genuinely don't see how this is that different from being like, I'm going to fuck you with knives. <laughs> Honestly, let's really talk about that. Yep, yep. Rambo is this just kink and we're kink shaming? <laughs> Rambo dismisses the wound as super. It is but a scratch, I guess he says. Uh, but he has it. I think that's Mercutio. You've got to, you've got it mixed up. He, he has it dressed in the hospital. Nevertheless, he doesn't. Find that's me. Do. That's me. Where I'm like, it's a scratch. Take me to the emergency room. It hurts so bad. <laughs> He doesn't file charges against Verlaine, but he does decide to leave Brussels. Okay, good. Great decision, yeah. Yeah. First Um, good choice we've heard all episode. However, Verlaine, and this is an interesting detail, and his mother (laughs) accompany Rambo to the the railway station in Brussels. Oh, okay. You you know as you do. (laughs) I don't know what Verlaine's mother You know when you're 30 and your 18-year-old lover who you just shot (laughs) is going to the train station, you're like... Mom, I need some emotional support. <laughs> Hello, Mamo. <laughs> On the way to the train station, though, Verlaine, according to Rambo's account, behaved as though he were insane. Um, as though Verlaine himself were insane or as though Rambo was? As though Verlaine was insane. Sorry, yeah, he was behaving. He was behaving in an insane manner. Okay. Too um, many pronouns. And... Afraid that Verlaine, who still had the pistol in his pocket, might shoot him again, Rambo ran and go ran to a policeman and begged to to be saved. This is not a good breakup. I was good. I mean, the thing is, like, it's 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 far in the past, but imagine this being now. This is a horribly abusive relationship. This is terrifying. Oh yeah, I think it was a pretty horribly abusive relationship back in the day. I just, oh, I, you know, like it's... Look, if the words begging a policeman come into the exactly. into the story. So, Verlaine, he does get 
charged with attempted murder and then he's subjected to a humiliating examination by the police i'm shocked they like i I guess they strip search him or something like that and um they write afterwards p verlin bears on his person traces of habitual pedestry both active and passive i have no idea what that means whoa okay that's a real um as we'd say in the test prep industry world unsupported inference <laughs> he was interrogated about his relationship with rambo okay uh in this um sort of strip search uh examination um but it's important to remember that it was not actually a crime to be gay that's actually what i was going to ask you okay okay yeah. so i wasn't sure he does although he's made yeah, i mean france's laws have always just been like hey <laughs> be cool just be cool about it, okay Although he's humiliated by it, that's not what he's charged with. He's charged with, understandably, attempted murder. Yeah, <laughs> yeah which yeah. Uh, again is what he did. Yeah, and sure. and he's uh, sent. He's sentenced to two years um, of hard labor in prison. Damn, I'm actually no. I'm really surprised that that's what Jean Valjean. Uh, he got the hard labor sentence too. So yeah. he was making ships, breaking rocks. Yeah, yeah, and all he did was steal a loaf of bread. I know it's a. Uh... Seems odd the way that <laughs> judgments were passed and the, the no. number of years. While he was in prison, Verlaine converted to Catholicism. Okay. Look, he, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> yeah, he became extremely pious. Um, and this this time in prison, it sort of really gives him a chance to sort of like work on his poetry and solidify his position as one of France's actually major poets. He's less read in English, I think, but he's, still, he's a very major figure in France. Um, and... In the name of that, I think it's time for a little bit of Verlaine's poetry. Mm, Closing my eyes, take Uh. me away. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, I'll give the French title, which is Il pleut dans mon cœur. It's raining in my heart as it rains on the town. What is this melancholy that penetrates my heart? Oh, the soft sound of the rain on the earth and the roofs. For a heart that is troubled, oh, the song of the rain. It rains for no reason in my heavy heart. But why? My grief has no reason. The greatest misery is to wonder why, with no heartbreak or bitterness, my heart feels such sorrow. I'm well, sorry, though. It's not good. I think that's a pretty good poem. Can I ask you a question? So is um, for his poetry, in France at least, is it, is, is it really like post-prison? His po- like that era of his poetry is more famous than his earlier poetry? No, I think that um, he was pretty famous throughout, but I think probably without the time sobering up in prison that he mm. might have, like he could have just spiraled and kind of gone into, I mean, he... There's also something about the scandal of prison that makes something salacious, you know, that... uh... So anyway, on his release from prison, um, Verlaine, he's taking his newfound Catholic piety very seriously. Uh, He goes to see Rambo again, which arguably, bad idea. Um, They go and meet in Stuttgart. Ah, um, uh, the sexiest. <laughs> no, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of eastern. There's a lot of eastern France getting a lot of. Uh, Stuttgart's in Germany. Um, Stuttgart, is it? Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm um, confusing it with Strasbourg. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Which also questionable. <laughs> at this stage, Rambo has he's given up on poetry entirely. Like so, you know, at the age of twenty, he was like, I've uh, changed French, and I'm going to forever. become. Well, hold on. We'll, we'll, okay, we'll get there. We'll get there. It Rambo, is a punchline. Rambo has given up on poetry. Uh, I've I've just written in favor of steady work, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which isn't wrong. <laughs> uh, 
And I am really sorry that I don't have this quote because it, it was a great one. But basically, they meet in Stuttgart and Rambo... Essentially what happens is is that Verlaine comes in preaching the Bible and unwavering in his belief that he's never going to do anything with Rambo ever again. And Rambo's report of it is effectively, within an hour, we'd shattered all the commandments and uh, <laughs> added a few ones just for fun. Let's say. <laughs> so they're, uh, they're back on their bullshit straight away. <laughs> Nevertheless, it was pretty clear that it wasn't going to work out between uh, Verlaine and Rambo and uh, they head their separate ways and that meeting in uh, I think it's 1875 in this hotel room in Stuttgart um, is the last time that they ever see one another. And so Rambo's only like 24 at this point. Yeah, maybe even younger, but yeah, yeah. And he's lived 15 lives. Yeah. Um, he's gonna. He's only going to go on and live some more. So they head their separate ways. Uh, Verlaine descends deeper and deeper into drug and alcohol addiction, uh, though he remains hugely respected as a poet. Um, he actually he has another quite well-known love affair with a pupil of his while he's teaching in London, uh, who I think is also pretty young. Uh, this guy's called Lucien Letinois, uh, and he wrote some other poems about him. And he died at the age of 51 from about all of the comorbidities that you could mention. Like, I mean, he was a ticking time bomb. And Mathilde had long ago left him. Oh, yeah. She was out. She's still alive. She's fine. I'm Mathilde. <laughs> She's thriving. <laughs> and he is buried in the cemetery de Batignolles. So there we go. We can go and visit his grave if you want. So close to my house. Oh. <laughs> uh, Rambo, meanwhile, and there is a whole other story here which we don't have time for. But very, very briefly, he ended. He turned, as I said, he turned his back on poetry entirely, and he went to go and live a life which was as as, as adventurous as the one that he used to read about when he was a kid back in Chalville. Uh, he worked in places like Cyprus, Yemen, and Ethiopia. Hold it. Doing? Doing what, Chris? Well, he did a bunch of stuff in Ethiopia. Uh Uh-huh. What was the worst thing he did in Ethiopia? Hold on. Wait wait till the... uh... Start with the good thing in Ethiopia. I'm sure he learned Amarignan. He He cooked some spicy food. Yeah, he got into the culture. Yeah. Tell us all about it, Christopher. He he struck up... He he lived in Harar. He was... Oh my God, Severy from where my mom was born. Okay, Harare. (laughs) Harare, sorry. Uh, He was... um... Uh, he was, I think, uh, he was described as only the third European to have even entered the city and the first one to do... <laughs> they were still counting. They were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> we know at this point there's a tipping point. <laughs> While he was there, he struck up a close friendship with the governor of uh, of the city, uh, who was actually the father of Haile Selassie. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you were going to give a super British name. Like, his name was actually Giles Jones. <laughs> oh, Okay. He was the tutor of the father of Haile Selassie for a while. Okay. Um, and Rambo also, while he was there, he worked in the coffee trade. And another great uh, quote that I got, he was in fact a pioneer of the business. <laughs> the first European to oversee the export of the celebrated coffee of Harare from the country where coffee was born. I'm dying. I'm dying. <laughs> so not only was he a great poet, but he, I mean, could he be more of the original hipster? Okay, but what's the other thing he did, Chris? Um, so eventually he ended up... Uh, well, he, he, ran, he ran guns. Oh, God. <laughs> Coffee to guns. <laughs> Nav was too happy. I didn't want to take her down. <laughs> Running guns to Ethiopia as the original. <laughs> the OG. <laughs> yeah, Humphrey mean- Bogart in... Uh... <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then he was he was still running guns when, um, at the age of, I guess it would have been 36, he started to experience pains in his leg, um, which he thought was just an infection. And then it got sort of so bad that he had to go back to France to have it treated where it was diagnosed as bone cancer. He had his leg amputated, oh. but then died from it uh, oh, shortly after. I did also read somewhere that it could have been third stage syphilis uh, that he had and not bone cancer which somehow kind of fits more with this like adventurous live fast die young kind of thing yeah but a little bit less with like you know when the syphilis gets into your bones (laughs) like i don't think that happens no i I, maybe it doesn't i mean i think it's interesting that that idea has because that seems to have Mm. been disproved i read it in one place and it's never i've not seen it mentioned anywhere else but it's funny that i think people almost want to suggest that it was a product of his like loose living and the person who he was that he died of that rather than this sort of it's also really odd because well correct me I, i wonder what you guys both think but to me it seems odd that he first became a poet and then was like let me try adventure let me try to live a life that one would try to write poetry about yeah it normally you would think it'd be the reverse right you live all these adventures you live these hijinks and then you go Shit, I should try to write about this, right? I should try to kind of literize this. It's it's interesting to me that he does it in a way that feels backwards almost, or that doesn't quite make sense. I've I've I, also been having that thought. Yeah. yeah. I feel like what you're saying is the ideal of like somebody lives and then they write. Yeah. And actually, listeners, writers are the worst. Often we're precocious and we never get past it. And I feel like this was Rambo a thousand percent. Which is just like you're good with language and you read a lot. You know what? And I I do also think that I've been thinking about this a lot recently for my own writing, which is that you're often told, you know, you live stuff like this is such a common trope, right? Write what you know, write what you know. But I do think that there are there are lots of people. It's not it's not even a special class of people. There are lots of people who who love writing, who have a sense of language, as you were saying, Rachel, who like have a sense of words and experience might catch up later. It's not it's not necessarily you do something and thus you can write about it. That's a very utilitarian version of or vision rather of writing. I think writing let me let me wax a little bit poetic here. I think writing can exist in a place that is kind of beautiful and magical and mystical and experience can catch up to it. It doesn't necessarily have to be experience first and then writing follows. Writing does not have to always be a record of what you've done. I think writing in some ways can be the record that you later on live to achieve afterwards. I've always had it just a totally the simpler third take is is kind of my habit on the spot. Um, <laughs> which is just that uh yeah, but like basic contrarian. <laughs> um, we, uh, that's me now. Which is just that writing what you know is uh writing about emotions that you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about writing something that's emotionally honest as opposed to based on you know, uh, particular. Sometimes you have emotions that you don't really have experience to back up yet, right? You kind of know it, you feel it, and then it's only later on that you go, "Oh, right, that's my life is catching up to what I kind of already sensed prior." Yeah, like I feel like as a kid, I felt a lot of nostalgia, strangely, mm-hmm. um, which uh, my hippie mother would have attributed probably to past lives, but uh, yeah. you know, uh, was in fact just a strange quirk of my brain. 
Then I wonder sometimes for Rambo whether writing was also a question of freedom when he was younger and kind of like trying to escape mm. the circumstance that he was in. And I mean, that began with him being in Charleville and trying to sort of like expand beyond that. And the only way that he could expand beyond the immediate boundaries before he could move was by going kind of deeper mm. into himself. And then later when life awarded him the opportunity to actually go beyond himself and to escape himself in a more true way, mm-hmm. um, like he he took that opportunity. He didn't need writing anymore. I can't nod harder. Yes. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave with a, f- a couple of quotes. So first of all, one from Camus, which is, I think, I, I mean, I, I don't think we have time to talk about it, but this is uh, about. Oh, I know, I know this quote. He just says nothing means anything, right? <laughs> it's Camus. Kind of sorry, kill me. I'm so sorry. Um, this was uh, so we don't have time to talk about it. Uh, this was about Camus and his view on on Rambo and kind of his his in some ways his kind of like disgust that Rambo did give up on writing um, because Camus described him he is a poet of the revolt and the greatest. But then he wrote this account about a scathing account about how he resigned himself from literature and from revolt and in his later life uh, he said that there was nothing to admire in Rambo nothing noble or even genuinely adventurous in a man who committed a spiritual suicide by becoming a bourgeois trafficker and consented to the materialistic order of things that is a quote think for a moment that his later life was younger than any of us is now yeah. Can I actually ask a question, Chris? Do you know if the fact that Rambo died so young, is that also a little bit part of his lingering legacy as well? That it, he, I don't know. Like I, an Amy Winehouse, Janis Joplin. Exactly. Or Jimi Hendrix, right? Like the idea that like some artists die too young almost. And as a result, we attach a romanticism and a profundity that perhaps, I'm not saying in the case of Rambo, but perhaps is not quite earned by what they've achieved or what they had done in their lives. But he hadn't written for so long by the time he died. I think it's hard to say. I think if he hadn't died at that age, then maybe he might have unworked his legacy, but probably not. He probably just would have withered into obscurity and mm-hmm. uh, i i don't i really don't know okay. it's uh, okay. it's a hard one to okay. i mean as i say we like not to get into it too much i think that his adventurous life that he lived though after his poetry and like there is this idea of him being a bourgeois trafficker but i think that actually adds to the the romance of rambo and that he had the conviction to give up on his art and um and live the life that he was writing about and you know it makes him the the uh, this is almost why he becomes the ultimate bohemian That's because true. he he can he can be like fuck you to all your you bohemians out there it was just a a ruse i'm just going to get mine yeah but as i say to to end uh with a quote from rambo himself back mm. when he was young and hadn't thought about these things the poet makes himself a seer by a long, prodigious and rational disordering of all the senses. Every form of love, of suffering, of madness, he searches himself, he consumes all the poisons in him, and he keeps only their quintessences. He reaches the unknown, and even if crazed, he ends up losing the understanding of his visions. At least he has seen them. Let him die charging through those unutterable, unnameable things. Other horrible workers will come. They will begin from the horizons where he has succumbed. You guys, is he talking about us? (laughs) (laughs) Many made a podcast. (laughs) 
And now it's time for our favorite segment, Mary Fuck Kill. So obviously there are a lot of different options in this story as to who we could marry, fucking kill. Um, you know, Verlaine, Rambo, and Mathilde, for example. Mm-hmm. But then we probably don't know enough about Mathilde, I thought, to to really get into that. And then I was trying to think about kind of like Bohemians and could we have kind of Bohemians? Could we have Bohemians versus not Bohemians versus <laughs> different ways of being a writer? So anyway, I basically, I I I... I went through a lot of options and then in the end i decided to settle on the, uh, the three drugs of choice of uh verlaine and rambo during their uh, rambunctious time together uh-huh. which were in no particular order opium hashish and absinthe Oof, okay. so those are your three choices okay okay no i know immediately oh go for it I'm killing absinthe. I've got a weak stomach. I know I can't handle it. Thank you. Um, fucking green fairy. I don't want to hallucinate. Mm-hmm. I very deliberately avoid hallucinogens because I don't trust my own brain. Mm-hmm. Um, I will fuck hashish as I have in the past <laughs> 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 because it does make me nauseous. But you can make brownies. You can tie in Alice Vitoklis's recipe. Um, and get those like sticky good brownie goodnesses, fall asleep on Gertrude Sand Couch, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, wake up in the morning feeling vaguely ashamed. Um, I've done it, and uh, you know, I'd rather uh, fuck that than the Green Fairy. Um, and yeah, opium is my <laughs> husband of choice. You know, you guys are not going to get a lot done. <laughs> um, for me, it is definitely kill absinthe. Partly because of the documentary Moulin Rouge, where we saw the Green Fairy being really (laughs) destructive, obviously. But also because no one talks about absinthe is disgusting. I've never had it, but I've had Pernod, and it's gross. It tastes so gross. You guys, nobody likes the black licorice jelly beans. Mm -hmm. And this is that, but alcohol. That's it, exactly. And I actually have a really important theory wherein... No one was drunk in, um, like, La Belle Époque. They just took a sip of absinthe. They were like, I can't have this again. And they just pretend to be, like, off their shit. They're like, oh, sh-. So it's terrible. So kill it straight away. I am going to fuck opium because I think that I'm into the hallucinations. I'm into kind of being in this altered reality, but not for long. I know myself, right? Like, I was, I was born and raised in the East Coast of the United States, right? Like, I've got the Puritan in me. We got to get some work done. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like the Puritans came, they made a home there. Uh, You know, like unintentionally, I'm part of that legacy. But I love the idea of kind of being a little dreamy for a while, you know, for a long weekend, for a couple weeks. But I am absolutely going to marry hashish because I think that's like the doable drug. That's the drug you can do all the time. You're not going to get a lot of stuff done. You're not going to get it done effectively. But you're going to get it done enough that no one's going to fire you. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to ruin your life. That's it. No one's going to get mad at you, right? Like, no one's like, oh, that pothead's here. Let's not invite them. They're like, oh, that pothead's here. Oh, you know, let's not let them be the godparent of our child, which honestly, a blessing in disguise. I'm not meant to be a godparent. Um, I honestly had not thought about this before I asked the question. Mm, I had a feeling. (laughs) I had a real big feeling about that. That's Chris's vibe, guys. That's Chris's vibe. <laughs> However, uh, now that I have asked the question and listened to your answers, I, I, I can kind of comfortably say I am killing hashish. <gasps> I don't like hashish. I don't like weed. It's just it's never sat well with me. Okay. Like, that's just that's just the reality. 
same. <laughs> Everyone knows my story about thinking I saw an imaginary policeman. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorites, though. <laughs> I will be definitely fucking opium because I think that that's a, a one-time, th- you know, a, an occasional thing. Maybe I've never, I've never smoked opium. I've never done heroin, which I assume is probably quite similar. Uh, but but have you ever had the pills they give you after your wisdom teeth are out? Because weirdly, that's related, and those are good. <laughs> You're gonna marry absent. I'm gonna marry absent. He's such a contrarian. What? Of course you are. I like I. Have... That's the bohemian move. That is the. I had a um, an embarrassing absinthe phase when I was seventeen, oh, eighteen, no. and this was. Last? I mean, we're talking three months, four months, but like you know, my my friend and I used to uh, like you know, this was the early days of the internet as well, and you do all this kind of research about absinthe on the internet, and we were like, oh my god, this this drink is illegal in however many countries in Europe, and then we found out that it was legal in england um <laughs> then like searching not even googling exciting or yahooing where to get it up in london and uh we would go on these ask a jeeving yes ask jeeving <laughs> where <laughs> where to get bottles of absinthe up in london and we would take the train up to london and we go to these obscure cool to buy this <laughs> and then we would we would bring because we were really cool we would bring our bottle of absinthe to these like you know school house parties no my stomach hurts again i'm not well again um and those were some uh, those were some good times <laughs> that you'd like to marry compared to being blissed out on opium forever and so well this is <laughs> i just think that me and absinthe are going to have a very short unhappy life together <laughs> And so that's that's my answer. Well, Chris, you do know what they say is that absinthe makes the heart grow fond. <laughs> <laughs> this is Rachel Kapelke Dale signing off. It's been nice being on this pod. I've now been ejected from my seat and we'll see you next week. <laughs>